Just a reminder that Big Mood, Little Mood with Daniel M. Lavery happens twice a week. Slate Plus members get an additional mini episode or Little Big Mood every Friday. Sign up now to listen at slate.com slash mood. Hello, welcome back to the Big Mood, Little Mood podcast. I'm your host, Danny M. Lavery, and with me in the studio this week are Kristen Meinzer, an award-winning podcaster, author, and culture critic, and Jolenta Greenberg, a New York-based comedian and author. Together, the two of them host a podcast called How to Be Fine, where they discuss wellness-related questions and help debunk self-help myths and promises. Uh, Welcome to the show. Thank you both so much for making time. Oh, thanks so much for having us. We're delighted to be here. I am so delighted to have you. I, I'm sorry, I didn't have a lot of questions in the hopper this week that felt quite connected to the themes of wellness and self-help. So I can't really pretend there's going to be like a <laughs> natural segue into asking you about your own show later. So I'm just saying that now so that when later I say, well, tell me about your show, no one feels surprised. <laughs> good, good. We like to prepare our listeners. Well, and it's kind of a shame too, because I feel like I do not too infrequently get questions along those lines. So I just mostly feel bad that I couldn't supply you with any of them today. Oh, we're just happy to be here. You can ask us anything. Listeners can ask us anything. Yeah, we're, we're here for it. Yeah, and certainly we'll be able to offer help that we hope people will themselves take. So in that sense, right. it's, it's always a little bit connected to self-help. But I'm, I'm pleased that you're here, especially because, you know, the, the first question has to do with uh, group dynamics and there are, you know, more than just two of us. So that's kind of nice. We're going to be able to <laughs> recreate a group dynamic ourselves. This is nice, too, because I started us off with like a nice, easy one. Like it's obviously frustrating for the letter writer, but like it's low stakes. No one's about to end a friendship or a relationship over it. No one's going to die unless like indirectly because of our collective dependence upon train, uh, plane and True. car travel. But, you know, <laughs> that's the like humming dissonant sound in the background of all of our questions. <laughs> so it, it's no, no worse than usual. So <laughs> the subject of this first question is flyby friends. About six years ago, I was lucky enough to be able to buy a house in my early 30s thanks to a wonderful union job and several siblings who were able to help me with the down payment. I live in the Pacific Northwest, about 15 minutes away from a major airport. Over the years, I've offered friends and family a place to stay overnight, park their car during their trips, while my partner or I drive them back and forth to the airport. It's a nice way to see loved ones we might not see otherwise. Recently, we've had situations where multiple people traveling at once have left a car with us. More than one extra car is manageable, given our limited parking, but only just, especially if we happen to have visitors of our own. Also, some friends are great about checking in with us before they leave their cars here, but others have gotten to the point where they'll only say something at the last minute. We're saving people a lot by not having to pay to park near the airport. When I have to go to the airport, I pay for a ride share, which is a little annoying, considering that once or twice a month I'm shuttling people to the airport myself. I know you're not big on love languages, and I appreciate that perspective, but for me, a little gesture of appreciation goes a long way. No one has ever brought us a thank you gift for our trouble like they might a pet sitter or something. I feel happy to provide this service for my friends and family, but I don't love the inconvenience it puts on us, and I don't like feeling taken for granted. We are doing this for a lot of the same people year after year. 
Is there a tactful way to suggest that some appreciation might be warranted without blowing my annoyance out of proportion? I feel bad because I would I would hate for anyone to think that my occasional gripes about the concept of love languages <laughs> has has taken me in the direction of, oh, and by the way, if you like getting little presents or tokens of appreciation, stop. I, I don't <laughs> feel that at all. I think it is a good and wonderful thing to be aware of the little sort of things that make you feel most loved and appreciated. And often I think it's really great to ask the people in your life for those things. So um, just to be clear, I'm pro-love, I'm pro-languages, I'm even pro-letting people know how you can feel most appreciated by them, just not necessarily certain discussions of that one particular concept from that one particular guy. Oh, Danny, admit it. You hate people who like gifts. Just admit it. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even think that's what the letter writer was was quite saying, but I just did want to take the opportunity to clarify. It's great if you like housewarming gifts or tokens of appreciation. <laughs> I support that all the way. I, I love that that subject even came up in this letter because Jolenta and I, in the precursor to our current show, How to Be Fine, we had a show called By the Book, and we did live by the rules of the five love languages. So I was oh really gosh. happy to see that mentioned in this letter, actually. Oh, good. Oh, good. Okay. Also, <laughs> please remi- remind me to ask you about that later because I'm very curious to hear about how that went. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Th- to me, the thing that this immediately put me in mind of was like, you know how sometimes you have like family friends who own a vacation home in like a popular vacation spot and they have that little binder with all the rules of the house. This is why those binders exist. Like Exactly. To me, this is like totally understandable that this is frustrating. Absolutely, there's a solution here, which is just develop a system and communicate it to people. So I think this will work. Like this is going to be fixable. Um, It's just a question of how to communicate to other people. Here's how much time from now on we need in advance. And here's, you know, be be ready to sometimes say no to people and, and to say like, you'll have to come up with a backup. Right. I was thinking this is a situation for me, at least, that would scream for some sort of like, Google Doc or Google Spreadsheet with mm-hmm. like some rules, like the binder rules you mentioned for the vacation home up top, like this much notice. We also appreciate a ride to the airport once in a while. Maybe a little column for when friends who get rides from you could offer you a ride. Like you can put in your upcoming travel. Like there are ways to make like a whole, there are ways to make it work so people almost take care of it themselves. I've seen vacation home like spreadsheets where it's just people say when they're coming to town, no one overlaps, everyone respects the rules and it and it ends up taking care of itself once people understand the rules and they're laid out clearly. Yeah, it it, it doesn't sound like, you know, there's there's occasional sort of incidental moments of slight thoughtlessness, but it doesn't sound as if all of their friends and relatives have just been like abusing the policy or treating them like garbage so much as just they're not all aware of each other's schedules. And over the years, they've become casual about this, which is, you know, not fun, but understandable. And the answer to that is just truly like one friendly, cheerful, slightly like friendly concierge at the hotel type email to everyone with a spreadsheet or a Google Doc just saying, you know, we've loved getting to do this. It's really nice to be able to be helpful, but it's become unwieldy uh, after six years. So we're implementing a strategy and you don't have to talk like you're working at the front desk. But if that's helpful to you, you you know, frame it as just like a a useful update that you'll all want to know about rather than like, yeah, oh, because you all misbehaved on the school bus home from the field trip, you're not getting a pizza party. Like it's not a punishment. No one did anything wrong. You just 
you need a system. And the system is now, you got to let us know, I don't know, a month in advance, three weeks in advance. And if you don't, you can't stay. And then we'll also let you know if someone else has that time booked and then you'll have to make other arrangements. And people will be fine. People will appreciate the clarity, right? Don't you? I like it when someone tells me, here's what I need from you. I appreciate that clarity. Yeah, I really like it. And I think it will also remind the people in the letter writer's life that that there are other people using this favor. I think when you're like, oh, sweet, I have a ride to the airport, you forget that almost everyone in that person's life thinks of them as the ride to the airport, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's just a reminder of like, hey, we've gotten so popular. You're not the only one. And it's just like, oh, right. That's that never comes off as like rude to me. It comes off as just sort of a reminder. Yeah, I I do, though. um, I I think this is a very straightforward answer to a very straightforward issue, the logistics of parking. But there is another issue here, though, which is this is somebody who feels that what they do never gets a thank you and they would like more thank yous in life. And I just have a couple of suggestions about maybe how we can get people to interact with a little bit more gratitude and a little bit more kindness and things. And sometimes that's as simple as being the one who gives it out first. And if your interactions with people have more thank yous with them, maybe you'll get more of those back as well. And in some cases, depending on who the friend or family member is, I think that you can actually broach the conversation and say, it makes me feel so good to be able to do this for you, but it also makes me feel so good when you say a little thank you. And I hope I'm not asking for too much, but it would make me feel so good if you would say thank you sometimes when I do this for you. And I think it's okay to ask for those things between loved ones. You know, people do it with their parents, with their partners all the time. I think you can do it with the people who are using your driveway and your services to the airport. And I think one reason perhaps you letter writer aren't doing that is because you open the letter almost kind of proclaiming guilt, like, I wouldn't even own this place if it weren't for my siblings chipping in for it, you know? Mm -hmm. But maybe get past that guilt and think more about how can I interact in a way or actually bid for or actually outright ask for a little bit more of what I want emotionally from the people around me. And that doesn't make you weak or bad to ask for those things. We all want appreciation, right? Oh, totally. The one thing I had thought about that was, I think that's probably better to separate from the update in systems. Just because it's not like you want a group thank you or a group acknowledgement. And bringing it up in a group setting might make people feel, again, I don't think that's at all what the letter writer wants, but they might feel a little bit indicted or slightly more like, oh, we're all in trouble. And I think just having a a casual off-the-cuff conversation with a couple of people just saying like, yeah, I, I I do like doing this, but I also really appreciate like, you know, the occasional thank you or, or even an, uh, an offer of a reciprocal trip to the airport and that that'll be an easy, casual conversation to have person to person. So that's the one thing that I would recommend separating out from the big mass email. And then again, the nice thing about the mass email is that if ever in the future someone texts you and they're like, oh, shoot, I forgot about your new little system, but I'm actually flying to wherever tomorrow. Can I come by? You could just get to be like, oh, you know, see my email about the system, (laughs) allow me to redirect. Like, it's not me, it's the system. It's just the system now. So you have this kind of automatic, like, you don't have to feel uncomfortable about explaining why not. You can just say, like, you got to go through the system. Otherwise, my boss gets really mad at me, my my airport (laughs) boss. But I think it will be fine. It sounds like everybody involved uh, is a, a generally good friend who's not 
stepping on toes aside from this. And it's also fine, I suppose, for the letter writer to consider, do they ever want to like take a break or in that schedule say like there's going to be a few months of the year where we don't do it for anybody, where we're blocking off that time. Mm. Anything that makes it feel more sustainable, you're allowed to take a break from doing this. You're allowed to take multiple breaks from doing this. You're allowed to stop if it's driving you nuts. Like it's very nice of you to do, but don't do it if it's making your life worse. So remind yourself that if you do a nice thing for your friends, you don't then have to do it as much as possible every day for the rest of your life until you die. Yeah. Especially if it's making you feel resentful because that's not making your friendships any better. Yeah. Yeah. Just it's, it's, it's good to cultivate like doing something nice some of the time, but feeling equally cheerful and relaxed about saying no when it's not convenient for you. Um, and like you say, like you're saving your friends money, but these are people who are already getting on a plane for vacation. It's not like you're helping somebody cover rent when they can't pay their bills. And that's not to say like, oh, this is just like a terrible, stupid problem. I just mean like you're helping them out, but this isn't a necessity that if they didn't have, they'd be in trouble. They would just, you know, they would take leave their car service to the airport like yeah. you do. Like exactly. right, that, they that was the other thing. My thought was like, well, if they're saving money not parking at the airport, wouldn't they still save like a fair amount of money just taking one car ride to the airport from a car service? Or am I totally misunderstanding something? I think they would, but now they get to do it for free because of our letter writer. But like, why would they if they have a free ride? Yeah. Yeah. If that's just become sort of their system, right. But totally. Or, or maybe they all live in like a bigger city where there's like alternate side sweeping and it would be more of a hassle to leave their car behind and get a bunch of tickets. But either way, like it's their car. They've got to figure it out. If if they can't go through you, there are other alternatives. I think that's all I've got on that one. Um it's just not too complicated. There's not very many yeah. ways to. That's pretty go straightforward. Yeah. You're allowed to have boundaries. You're allowed to ask for thank you, especially when you got them trapped in a car on the way to the airport. That's when you bring up, <laughs> I love thank yous. Yeah. You don't even have to make eye contact. You can do the, the drive talk, you know. Mm-hmm. But it is hard. It's really hard to tell someone you want them to thank you. Because what you really want is for it to be unprompted and you don't want to seem sort of like punitive or joyless. And so it's it's good to do with a light touch. And hopefully, as soon as you mention it, the other person's like, oh my gosh, of course, yes. Wow. I've never thanked you. Wow. Yeah. Oh my <laughs> gosh. We've been taking this for granted. Yeah. It's ideally what you want to hear. All right. Well, do you feel ready to move on to something more complicated and sad? Yes, yes. yes. Great. (laughs) Now, you wanted me to read this one? Is that right? I did, yeah, because it's too sad for me. All right. The subject is understanding isn't enough. What is a reasonable and kind way to approach someone treating you in a hurtful way because of delusions? My boyfriend has diagnosed borderline personality disorder and paranoid delusions. I knew about this before we moved in together, but now that we live together, I am one of the people he feels targeted by. Apparently, he'd always suspected that I secretly hate him and wish he would die, but it was easier to manage when we spent most of our time together out of the house and doing something. He doesn't work while I work from home, so every second I am not doing something with him, he is, quote, lying in bed, feeling me hate him. I do my best to spend my free time with him, but I work full time and am not around most of the day, and I need to do household chores and other things too. Even though we spend time together every day, he thinks everything I do is to demonstrate how terrible I think he is. 
For example, if I start to clean something, he blows up and starts yelling that I hate him for not cleaning that thing while I was working, and he knows I'm only doing it to punish him and calls me cruel names. For him, believing this must be incredibly difficult and emotionally draining, and my hurt feelings feel less important than his mental distress— but I don't know how to help him. I've tried talking to him about why he believes these things, and he says he knows they're unfounded and don't come from any behavior I can change. But he feels they're true. I've tried things like sending him a text with my love and appreciation to look at every time he starts feeling my hatred, but this hasn't helped. I want to help him, but I feel myself getting resentful the more I am screamed at and blamed for things I haven't done, and also exhausted that any time I do anything, from cleaning to leaving the house to relaxing, can upset him so much. I don't want to gaslight him, but he is yelling at me, calling me names, and punishing me over things that are not real. He always says he knows they're not real, just like his delusions about others, but he still treats me like I am out to get him, and I don't know how to fix it. Oh, letter writer, I feel so bad for you. This I am is such so a hard situation. Sorry you are in this situation. Oh my gosh. There's a lot jumping out at this letter to me that is telling me what you should actually do. I, I mm. think it's interesting, Danny, a lot of your letters you get, the person kind of says in the letter what they know they should do, mm-hmm. even as they're writing to you asking what to do. Right. Do you see what I'm talking about here? Very much so, yeah. And this one does not have the sort of, you know, I I, I came to a pretty uh, straightforward conclusion by the end of this letter. The letter writer does not seem to be there yet. Yes. Um, yes. And but, I, I'll uh, just say that. I don't know why I'm being coy. I think that the letter writer should break up with her partner. Right. Yes. I mean, the letter writer says, the partner says flat out, the partner is saying, nothing you can do is going to change the way I treat you. Yeah, that one like hurt my heart where it's like, oh, if even he can see that, the place he's in right now. Yeah, and I was also concerned about, I want to help him, but I feel myself getting resentful the more I'm screamed at. You know, if, again, I'm in no way qualified to uh, diagnose or help treat somebody with borderline personality or any personality disorder, but just in terms of, living in a sustainable and healthy way with another person, if somebody is screaming at you day after day and your reaction is, I must not be doing a good enough job helping them, Mm. that tells me that your reaction to danger, threats, and emotional abuse is something must really be wrong with me that this is happening to me and I must be working harder to fix it. And that makes me worry about your well-being, letter writer. And, And none of this, by the way, is to say, your boyfriend must be a monstrous person. I have no doubt that he is genuinely suffering, as you say. Um, And I can really understand that there is a degree to which he is less culpable for uh, his behavior than somebody without such a diagnosis would be. But the question is not, you know, does he deserve help, treatment, basic safety, and respect? The question is, is he capable of being in a relationship with you without abusing and mistreating you? And the answer is pretty clearly no. He himself says no. Um, your own experience tells you no, and, and there's no new strategy, no new treatment, no new techniques um, in sight that would suggest that there's any reason to believe that change is imminent. My my advice to you, letter writer, is share with at least one other person as soon as you can the fact that your boyfriend regularly screams at you and berates you, and that your reaction to that is to 
to blame yourself because that's worrying and the people in your life who know you and love you should know about this. Strongly encourage you to share that with a therapist of your own if you don't have one already. And I think you should take steps to leave this relationship as soon as you possibly can. Yeah. Like, regardless of why the situation is the way it is, the situation sounds abusive and not not safe mentally or physically for our letter writer. And it's sad because, like you said, it's not to say that their boyfriend is undeserving of love or not able to be in a relationship someday. But the fact that he doesn't seem to be able to separate the fact that he knows she doesn't hate him, but he can't control his actions in regard to feeling that the letter writer hates him. That's where the problem lies. That, That no amount of love or help or extra chores or love notes can can fix. Yeah, that's absolutely it. And I think it it would be different if this were a situation where he knew he regularly struggled with these thoughts. He has a a support structure in place. The the letter writer mentions that he's been diagnosed, but there's no, I don't know if he's currently receiving treatment or not. If he is, it's not working in the way that it needs to be. But like, if, for example, this letter was, he is familiar enough with these patterns and thought behaviors, he primarily shares them with his, uh, you know, treatment team and has coping strategies for dealing with them. I'm aware that he experiences this, but his first response is not to share them with me. I could have different advice for this couple. I would not say like, you've got to get out of there. Anyone who struggles with delusions or thoughts like this is an inherently bad person to be in a relationship with. So I do want to make it clear, it's not even these delusional paranoid thoughts that are the problem. It is the fact that his response to those delusional paranoid thoughts is to scream at you or to demand that you spend every waking moment with him, or uh, to to hurt you. That's the issue. And, and so I do feel like that's a really important distinction because it's not just like, oh, his brain is, you know, sending unkind, uncaring, painful, intrusive thoughts to him, run away. It's his coping strategies don't work. And he's not doing the work necessary to change them. His coping strategy is to try to emotionally destroy you. Yeah. I mean, the fact is that everybody is handed a certain deck in life and it's compassionate that our letter writer is saying, I feel bad for my partner. He was dealt this deck and it's not his fault. It's the deck's fault. It's, but it's not actually. I just want to say there are people who have mental illnesses who don't abuse their partners. There are people who come from abusive families who don't go on to abuse their partners. There are people with addiction issues who don't abuse their partners. So it doesn't have to be something that they're intertwined where A plus B equals abuse. It doesn't have to be that. This is somebody who has this disorder and is abusive. It's two things here. Mm -hmm. And I would encourage the letter writer to think of it that way. Yeah, you know, the other thing that really just concerns me in in a really concerning letter is I don't want to gaslight him, but he's yelling at me, calling me names and punishing me over things that are not real. I don't even know what the letter writer could do to gaslight him in this situation. It just seems like it's not even like she's considering doing something that she worries could be gaslighting. It's just like, and on top of everything else, I'm afraid I could gaslight him. And it's just like, where are you getting this idea that that's something you're like, you are being abused by your partner and your worry is that you could potentially somehow abuse him in a vague, unspecified way. And again, I I don't mean to 
make you feel worse at all about your situation, but that suggests to me that your safety meter right now is not working correctly. You're not able to correctly assess your situation if your fear is that you might psychologically abuse the person who is currently, actually, really abusing you. And also, if anyone's being gaslit here, it's the letter writer. The letter writer is being told over and over again, like, you don't love me enough. You abandoned me. It's like, no, you actually were working. No, I was just cleaning the sink. I I wasn't trying to tell you you're a monster because I was cleaning the sink. So it's the letter writer who's being gaslit here. Letter writer, please don't worry that you're gaslighting anybody else here. Please. Right. And, you know, letter writer, you already on some level know trying to argue over these delusions is not working and trying to be so, so, so attentive to his needs that you can somehow penetrate this fog of paranoia and persecution is also not working. And so on some level, you know, there is no amount of attentive or loving or self-negating you could do that would address your boyfriend's root delusions and subsequent decisions to mistreat you. And I think sometimes it's just really helpful to say that again out loud to a trusted friend, a a relative that you trust, somebody you know loves you and just say, I have tried all these things. They're not working. I know they're not working. It's been hard to admit this, but I need to say it to someone and then get the help you need to leave. Because again, if even if it could work, like even if if there if if I believed there was some way you could be so loving, so docile, so endlessly forgiving, so absorbent of whatever abuse he wanted to send your way that you could put him at ease, I would not encourage you to do it. Even if I thought it would work, which I don't think it would, I I, I don't think that that would be worth it. And I would have the same advice for anyone. You know, again, if it's hard to think of this in terms of you, just ask yourself if the situation were reversed. I want my boyfriend to stay with me. Or would I want him to go and take care of himself? And I think my guess is you would know if you flipped it in your head, you would think I would want him to be somewhere safe and calm. And I would want at the very least for myself not to continue hurting him. And so if you can't think of it yet in terms of your own safety, to just remind yourself, it's also not good for him to be abusing you. That doesn't help him. And again, I'm not saying you should put his needs before yours again here, but if that's what it takes to kind of reorient your approach to this relationship, do whatever helps you. But you need to go. You are not yourself a treatment for delusions. There's no therapist in the world, no medical professional who would say, my treatment for these delusions is for your girlfriend to stay with you forever and be really, really nice to you. Yeah. Put up with more abuse is never going to be the answer to fix an abuser. And also just, uh, I really liked uh, what you had to say, Danny, about imagining imagining even if it's just the letter writer's boyfriend, because clearly this letter writer is so compassionate, so full mm-hmm. of love, so giving that like, yeah, put the shoe on the other foot as someone that's compassionate, loving and giving. Is that what you would want someone you care about to receive? And I, I can understand, you know, I've had loved ones in my life before experience delusions, sometimes psychosis, sometimes hallucinations. Um, And it is really tempting, especially when you care about someone, to want to reassure them by saying, don't worry, that's not true. And it's so tempting, even though I feel fairly confident saying probably never in the history of a delusion or psychosis has someone heard someone else say, don't worry, that's not true, and said, oh, that's a relief. Okay, good. I'll stop having that delusion then. And I really... I can really relate to it because it just feels so like, I've got good news for you. If you'll just listen, 
things are so much better than you think they are. But that's just not how delusions and that kind of disorder operate. You can't simply discuss somebody out of them. Yeah, there's no no logic penetrates it. And that's not to say that there's not different ways of like effectively treating and managing it. Just it's not an interpersonal reassurance or argument. Um, and so if part of you just feels tempted to just think, but if I just say it one more time, he'll see reality. And I wish that were the case, but that's just not how that sort of thing works. But yeah, please do write back and let us know how you're doing. Um, I really, really hope that you leave immediately. This is not going to be the kind of breakup where you're going to be able to have a really long, both-sided conversation about how you both feel. This is going to need to be get out however you can, end the relationship as fast as you can, get your stuff, make sure there's always somebody with you. I would encourage you not to be alone with him again. And that's going to feel hard because you're. I think based on the personality that's been presented here, you're going to want to explain. You're going to want to soften the blow. You're going to want to reassure him that it's not that you don't love him and it's not that you don't think he's worthy of love. It's that you you can't be with him, but he can't hear that. I don't know if he'll ever be able to hear that. And so that would just be unnecessary pain for you um, without bringing any relief to him. So you just need to focus on your own safety and get out. All he needs to know is that your relationship is over. Not, you know, don't have a like six hour sit down conversation. No. Take care of yourself, please. Yeah, please. And do please do write back because I would I would love to know how you're doing. And again, if if all of this sounds like too much or too hard, start with telling one other person what it's actually like and then take it one day at a time. I would love to hear a little bit more about your general work advising people on, I guess, kind of on the subject of advice. I'm curious to hear like how you approach the subject of transformation or self-help or improvement ideas or wellness generally. So if you don't mind kind of giving us the rundown on what your show examines and, and tries to focus on, I'd love to hear it. Of course. Um, well, our show is called How to Be Fine. And like you said, it's an advice show about advice, basically. Um, before we started How to Be Fine, Kristen and I spent 10 seasons doing another podcast called By the Book, where we lived by self-help books pretty religiously for two weeks at a time. So we experienced advice firsthand and then critiqued it. And now we're helping dole out some advice while also critiquing uh, wellness advice and hopefully helping people aim towards just getting to fine as opposed to what's often promised in the wellness self-help sphere, which is, you know, your optimum self, highest performance, best ever, happiest day, you know. You're going to be the richest, the most productive, the most blah, 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 blah. We're trying mm -hmm. to sort of cut through the BS and be like, are there things that make us actually feel good? What are they? How are people capitalizing on them to make us waste money on them too? So like the concept of the good enough mother would apply to everybody. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I, guess, I guess the concept of the indigo girls closer to fine, which I hope exactly. is your intro music. We sing it to ourselves, but we don't on the rights. <laughs> Someday we dream, but yes. I think I've told this story on the air before, so I apologize if I have, but I have a buddy, Calvin, and one of my favorite things to do is every couple of months, see how many lyrics from Closer to Fine I can work into a casual conversation with him before he realizes oh I'm my reciting gosh. the lyrics from Closer <laughs> to Fine to him. That's um, amazing. 
And it's one of my favorite things to do. It is so much oh fun. Oh my gosh, I, I love that. But specifically, I recommend doing it to my friend Calvin. So oh if you want to start doing it, I need Calvin's phone number. number so I can yeah. start doing this too. Just start oh, I'll texting. give his number He'll to get anyone. Text messages from randos. Just <laughs> I will not give his phone number to anyone. Just to be clear, I value and esteem my friend Calvin and his safety and well-being, and I don't just hand out his number to strangers. But I do trust the two of you, so you'll get it after the show for sure. We won't oh, abuse excellent. it, Calvin. So um, I do though. I, I do want to hear a little bit more about the show. But first, please go back to your earlier show. Uh, by the book, because you mentioned that you lived for two weeks according to the principles of the love languages. And I need to hear about that or I will lose my mind. Well, I think Kristen, Kristen has some thoughts you you would definitely be interested in, I think. Well, Jolenta liked the book more than I, I did. did. Yes. There, I, I, I am not a fan of typologies. I don't like organizing all people into four things, five things, six things, 12 things, because I think it's really reductive, and I think that it often results in profiling people in ways that are, you know, sexist, racist, a lot of other things. And I'm just not comfortable with those kinds of categorizations of people, and that includes love languages. That being said, one thing I did like about the book is it changed my thinking about, um, I was kind of brought up with the golden rule, like, do unto others as you would want done unto yourself. And the overarching principle of the five love languages is don't do unto others what you would want. Do unto them what they would want. And what they want might be different than what you want. So your partner or friend might prefer things like words of affirmation and not the dumb trinkets you keep bringing them. Or they might prefer, you know, physical touch or acts of service. So stop complimenting them all the time because the compliments are hitting them like, you know, they're just going over your friend's heads or your partner's heads. So however they like to receive love, give them love in that way is essentially the principle of the book. So as much as I hate typologies, I do like the overarching idea of it. Jolenta does tend to like typologies way more than I do. She likes astrology. She likes, you know, other things that I don't. So Magazine she went quizzes. in with a more open yeah. mind from the get-go. <laughs> no, I like the love languages and it did help sort of open discussions with my partner about like, wait, what do you appreciate? Oh, I don't care about words of affirmation at all, but my partner freaking loves them. So I have to remember to like pepper them in. And when I do, he still to this day is like, oh my gosh, thanks. <laughs> you noticed? I'm like, wow, it's so responsive to that where I would want like a hug and don't care about the words that much. And also we did have some controversy when our episode aired about um, the love language of gift giving because <laughs> oh, yeah. one of one of the hosts thought, who on earth cares about getting gifts? <laughs> Are you like shallow people. if you only care about gifts? Who would that person gifts? be? Would that be me? <laughs> yes, it was me. Yes. And, and you know Presents what? Presents are our, great. Our, our letter writers explained to me in ways that I hadn't thought about before that for certain people who explained it to me um, as... I am somebody who is not um, adept at reading social cues. So I don't know when people are saying words of affirmation, if they're actually being sarcastic with me. I don't know how to read physical and social cues very well. So I deal better with objects. And so when someone gives me a gift, I know exactly how to take that. That's an object equals this. And so when people wrote in and said that, I'm like, oh, that makes so much more sense. If these other things are hard for you to understand or read then having something physical, it makes sense. It's just that for me personally and for 
according to the book, the vast majority of people, say, the people it's a, who— It's a rare love language It's have. a very rare love language that the ultimate way you receive love is receiving gifts. Most people don't need to receive gifts to feel loved, but a small percentage of people, they, they do because that physical object is the only thing they can really register as love. We also got a fair amount of people who wrote in afterwards saying that their grandparents who survived the Great Depression were really into gift giving as a love language. Just That's having nice. gone without for so much, that whole generation seemed to like it a bit more than the subsequent ones. It also feels like I know it was like an older evangelical pastor who, who wrote the book. And my sort of assumption was always like he threw that one in there for his mistress. It was like, (laughs) this is how my wife receives love. And obviously I have to buy stuff to keep my mistress coming around, um, which is perhaps needlessly cynical. But, you know, I've known a lot of evangelical pastors. And frankly, having a mistress is one of the best secrets they can have. So um, there we are. (laughs) I love that. Moving back to your newer show, I'm curious, did you go into it kind of thinking, was it sort of the sense of like, we believe that there are a lot of myths or, or, or ideas out there that require sort of debunking? Or was it more just, we're going to give them a try and see what happens? Did you have a sense of what, if anything, you wanted to uh, counter? Well, we really wanted to expand our conversation beyond just books. Because in the time that we were making the show, this thing started happening called influencers. They didn't even exist when we started the show. TikTok didn't exist. Um all the betterment trends that have cropped up during the pandemic. And so the wellness industry, the wellness world has expanded and become a multi-billion dollar industry. Whereas when we first started making Buy the Book, it was it was definitely there, but it was not at the level that it is now. And there are other things we wanted to explore beyond the books. You know, this gadget, this um, trend that is going viral on social. We want we want to explore all of these other things and the relationships between those things and cults, the relationship between those things and entertainment and media, because a lot of them are interconnected with each other. Man, that sounds uh, really fascinating. And are you going to be like trying different wellness ideas as you had been with the books in order to see whether or not they work for you? Or does that feel treading into like too much human guinea pig territory? We definitely will touch on experiences that we've had with um like certain trending uh wellness hacks and and practices. Uh so yeah, that will definitely be there. Yeah. And and there's still gonna be books in there, by the way, too. We've already um taped a couple of upcoming episodes that uh I did read books cover to cover for for those episodes. Well. That sounds fantastic. And hopefully you're able to, I don't know, like launch a new genre, like self worsening. <laughs> yes, yes. Self-de-optimizing. Worse on yeah. 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 I'm sure there's a, a market for that somewhere. Thank you both so much for taking some time to answer these questions with me. Um, everything from cars to friendships to boyfriends to trousers. And uh, best of luck with the new show. I'm really excited to give it a listen. Thank Thanks. you so much, Danny. This has been so fun. Have a fabulous rest of your day. I'll talk to you soon. All right, before I let the rest of you go, I have a couple of reader responses from the letter writer a few weeks ago uh, who works at a university and is really struggling being one of the few people on campus who's still wearing a mask and trying to figure out uh, how to channel their energies appropriately so they're not just getting mad at every like 19-year-old that they see who is doing their best in a difficult time or maybe not doing their best. I don't know, doing whatever they're doing. So here's the first one. 
This is a tough situation, but I have some thoughts I hope might help. First, the letter writer asked how the school will make determinations about transmission levels without testing. My school makes decisions based on the community transition rates, but now that we're a red zone community, they're only strongly encouraging masks rather than requiring them. My suggestion is to ask exactly where your school is getting its data from and what they plan to do if that data changes. Find out if they have a COVID safety team, if it's the board of trustees or a specific vice president, etc. And if possible, schedule a meeting to learn as much as you can about their policies and plans. Knowledge can be power, and putting names and faces to the people making the decisions might help you direct your anger or energy away from students. Second, you mentioned talking to your union rep. Is your local connected to a larger state or regional union, and are they doing any organizing around this? Are there other unions on campus? If you're not the only one feeling this way, maybe you can mobilize together to put pressure on your administration. Taking action may make you feel less helpless and thus less resentful. Another response says, I feel the same way and have a couple of thoughts too. Could you have a polite sign somewhere encouraging people to wear masks? Maybe your employer wouldn't let you, but it might be worth asking. When I got a sign that said, it's not just about you, wear a mask, it helped me to feel less like I needed to distribute steely glares to fellow subway passengers. Sometimes my resentment came as much from the silence as from people's behavior, and if I break the silence myself in some small way, it helps. Two, it doesn't have to be a zero-sum game between your anger at these people and your compassion for them. Both of these parts of you deserve space. We're humans, not flawless creatures, who only mete out anger and grace to the appropriate parties with perfect fairness. The more you try to push your anger away, the louder it might become. You can try taking a deep breath and saying to yourself, I am both angry that they won't wear a mask, and I want to be kind to them slash help them with their problem. Maybe then you can focus on your goals with them without feeling like your emotions are being shut down. I think the only thing that I would add to that is if you do get the go-ahead to put up a small sign, it might also be useful to put out a free supply of masks. I realize that's not going to be free and that will be uh, you know, some work for you to find and secure a supply of them. But I think especially since so many places are no longer requiring masks, there's also a lot fewer places distributing masks. Um, and it's all about um, making it easier and frictionless for people to wear them. And so if you're able to just put out a little discreet stack of course, that also might drive you nuts if you are like, people walk by and don't take one. So, you know, take that one with a grain of salt, but that might be useful. And presumably, I don't know that you would need, like, I don't know. I don't want to make promises about what you do and don't need permission to do. But it'd be nice if, in addition to the sign, you could put out a supply that people could take as needed. And that's all from me. Thank you all so much. And I will see you next week. Thanks for joining us on Big Mood, Little Mood with me, Danny Lavery. Our producer is Phil Circus, who also composed our theme music. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash mood to sign up to subscribe or hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're using right now. Thanks. Also, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to know what you think. If you want more Big Mood, Little Mood, you should join Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. Members get an extra episode of Big Mood, Little Mood every Friday, and you'll get to hear more advice or conversations with our guest. And as a Slate Plus member, you'll also be supporting the show. Go to slate.com forward slash mood plus to sign up. It's just $15 for your first three months. If you'd like me to read your letter on the show, maybe you need a little advice, maybe you need some big advice, head to slate.com slash mood to find our Big Mood, Little Mood listener question form or find a link in the description on the platform you're using right now. Thanks for listening.
And here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. And that's a good point, too, because also, like, norms there can change. Like, 70 years ago, if somebody went out in pants that didn't cover all of their underwear, people would probably remark on it a lot more. Whereas, like, you know, 15 years ago, not in every circumstance, not necessarily at every job interview, but under some circumstances, like, it was kind of a status style thing to, like, wear low-rise jeans with a, you know, cute thong underneath it that peeked out over the hem. And so, like, somebody who was doing that as, like, a fashion statement would not really appreciate someone saying, I can see your underwear. Underwear, yeah. So norms, they can change the there as well. The 90s are coming back, the 90s millennial fashion, so... Yeah, so I guess also be prepared. Why fix a low-rise? She, she might, yeah, <laughs> and again, like, one person's way too much is somebody else's fashion statement or is somebody else's I don't care. To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash mood.